here we go. Let's, uh, let's get into our final week of Sabbath. Shakas for Sabbath, uh, as, I, as Jeremy would have us do. Uh, <laughs> well, years before the slap heard around the world, Will Smith was faced with what he called the greatest question he had ever been asked. After decades of sitting through hundreds of interviews, Will Smith's greatest question came from, of all places, his oldest son, Trey, at the dinner table one night. Trey asked Will, Dad, what do you worship? He initially brushed off the question by saying, well, God, but he couldn't stop thinking about it. Will became haunted by the greatest question he had ever been asked. And his son's follow-up question to his answer, are you sure? What do you worship? And are you sure? Now, like Will, you may say God, but are you sure? Or maybe somehow you got dragged in today and you might say nothing, but are you sure? Social critic David Foster Wallace, in a commencement speech that gets quoted from the stage at least once a year, <laughs> says this about worship. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as worship. Or sorry, there's definitely such thing as worship. There's no such thing as atheism. Excuse me. There's no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and on it goes. So the question isn't, do you worship? It's who or what do you worship? You will worship anything. Strike that. You already are worshiping something. You already put your trust, your hope, your love onto something. We already place our identity, our community, our sense of meaning and purpose in something. You pursue something. You discipline yourself towards something. You sacrifice towards some ends. You currently orient and reorient your entire life, your days and your weeks around something. Everyone worships. The question is, what is it? And are you sure? Even for the parents in this room, who are you raising your kids to worship? And are you sure? Jesus provided us with a tool for determining our answer when he said in Matthew chapter 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, though in context, Jesus was speaking about our wealth and material possessions, if we just consider that time is one of the most precious treasures we possess, we might paraphrase Jesus' words as, for where your time is, there your worship will be also. Or maybe more in our language today, show me your time and I'll show you your God. 
Now, for six days of the week, we belong to the warp and woof of life, sleeping, eating, drinking, looking for parking, work, email. That's like, it's like, what are the main things that Angelinos do? We sleep, we eat, we work, and we, we park. <laughs> or at least we look for it. Email, meetings, chores, errands, packing lunches, diapers, studying, on goes the list. It's all what author Tish Harrison Warren calls the cussedness of life. And it can be really overwhelming for me to say, all right, show me your time, I'll show you your God. All 168 hours, it can be overwhelming. So what if we just zoomed in on 24? Let's just look at Sunday. What 70% of people who identify as Christians would call their, their Sabbath. What does this day reveal about our worship? If you're like most Western Christians, your average Sunday probably looks like staying up too late on Saturday, watching a movie or a TV show, going to a party, overeating, possibly overdrinking. You wake up on a haze on Sunday morning before rushing out the door to the church gathering, arriving on average 15 minutes late. That is when you do go. More and more people don't, especially not consistently. You leave the gathering early, grab lunch, go shopping, watch a game or two, work around the house, fold laundry, get ahead on email or that work project while your kids cross their third hour straight on iPad time, and you plan your week, meal prep, or do homework. As the afternoon turns into evening, you stave off the Sunday scaries by scrolling on your phone while a show or movie plays in the background. You stay up later than you intended, and you shuffle off to bed. I, I, hear me, I don't say any of this with a, with a lick, a hint of judgment. Some of you are in the room, you're like, that's me right now. I got here 15 minutes late. I, there's no... Do not feel any shame today. This is just an honest appraisal, honest appraisal, genuinely, that for most Christians, their Sundays look the same as anybody else's in the city. Just replace the church gathering with sleeping in, nursing a hangover, brunch, or yoga, and it's all the same. Now, here's the deal. We could say that this is not Sabbath, or we might call it Sabbish, kind of Sabbath, but not really. <laughs> but, but hear me. This, this is not the absence of Sabbath. This is a form of it. This is a form of Sabbath, a day set apart for worship, a day oriented around your God. And leave it to an advertisement near my house for a body oil at Sephora. I would show the picture, but it's a little for church. To prophetically, leave it to this advertisement to Sephora to prophetically name our secular Sabbath for us as time to worship you. Stop me in my tracks. Stop me in my tracks. You see, our secular age has not forgotten Sabbath. We're as devout as ever. We've just replaced the God. Ours is a Sabbath of self-worship, largely under the guise of self-care, a day oriented around what I want, what I desire, what I feel I need, what I deserve, and more of it all. Whether working or shopping, body oils or entertainment, all are offerings given to the altar of self. I, you may think I'm coming up to talk about how you worship your work and that's the problem. No, you, we, we worship ourselves and work is simply one, just a couple more emails, just a little more work on that project is one avenue in which we give altars to the self at the center. So our Sunday gatherings too, they, they even, you may say, well, I, you know, I, don't, I, I go to church on Sunday. I just want you to consider. Sunday gatherings in our age too are just another tool of self-worship. 
You can discern this by just thinking about the fact that most of the ways that we engage with the Sunday gathering revolve around the I or the me at the middle. I pick and choose what church I'll go to, when I'll go, when I'll show up, what I'll contribute, when I'll leave, all through the lens of whether or not I want to or whether or not I feel I need it today, unless there's something I want to do more or if I don't feel like I actually need it. The primary, what's, the, what's the primary framework of whether or not we contribute to a life of worship within the Sunday gathering is not anything other than whether or not I want it or need it. Once again, show me your Sabbath and I'll show you your God. So here, I hate to break it to you this early in the morning. You make a terrible God. You're fickle. You're unappeasable and never satisfied. And all of your offerings to yourself only leave you with more chronic exhaustion and restlessness and a never-ending craving for more. As each week, our little secular Sabbaths repeat the rote liturgy of, I desire, I deserve, I demand, and I get it, I'm disappointed, I'm discouraged, I am depressed. Week by week, we go through this rhythm until Monday comes, we wake up, and we return to the world to save up money and time so we can try again to appease the God at the center of our lives, which is us. But what this leads to over time, week in and week out, and some of you feel this deep in your bones, is you only fall further into a spiritual and psychological orbital decay in on yourself. As Albert Einstein put it, a person first starts to live when he can live outside himself. We in our age live the opposite. A person first starts to die when they can only live for themselves. Last August, I joined a Zoom call with hundreds, hundreds of pastors and church leaders from around the world to discuss practicing the way and incorporating Sabbath into the life of the local church. During the Q&A session at the back end, uh, John Mark Comer, who's the founder of Practicing the Way, he's a pastor in Portland for almost two decades, you know, I raised my little emoji hand and got called on. I was the first person called on, which is always the worst. You're like, oh, I think I have a question. Like, I'll have, I'll throw it up now and have a second to like think about it. And they're like, Ryan, uh, like you just, uh. So it just led to me wondering out loud how though the practice of Sabbath had absolutely changed my life, I deeply struggled with implementing it in our community. What's the need of Sabbath for people who have already largely, not all of you, but largely most of you traded hustle culture for sustainable boundaries and mental health days? What's the point of Sabbath for people who vacation and, and travel frequently? What's the point of, of, of Sabbath and rest for people who are fairly affluent, who have people taking care of, whether that's childcare or all these kinds of things? Like most of us have a pretty cush life on the West Side. What, what's the point of Sabbath for a people who already feast weekly, if not daily? Like we live in LA, the food here is insane. What's the point of Sabbath for West Side Angelinos? John Mark Comer took a long pause and then he replied. He said, the first need would be the justice and hospitality of Sabbath. To become a community that asks, how can we give Sabbath to others and those who don't have it? And how can we create a Sabbath family in a city of radical but lonely individualists? And we hit on some of this in the past weeks. But second, he said, but truly the first in terms of priority would be the necessity to shift Sabbath from wellness for me to Sabbath as worship to God. 
He said the necessity of Sabbath to be understood as a weekly rhythm that moves us out of our selfishness and consumerism and into deeper surrender to the love and presence of God. He closed his comment with a warning of a Sabbath practice that looks externally good, but is inwardly fueled by narcissism and in doing so runs on empty. It's a little bit of a longer intro today, but it brings us one last time to the four movements of Sabbath. Sop, rest, delight, and worship. If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn again to Genesis chapter two? For our final teaching... In our Sabbath series, today we're looking at, you probably guessed at this point, worship. And as you probably also begin to put together, this is the most important movement of the Sabbath as it takes the previous three and brings them out from us and into the one who is life at the center of the cosmos. Once you're there to Genesis chapter two, would you join me in standing if you're able for the reading of the scriptures this morning? And so, Holy Spirit, we pray Would you speak within this community today? Would you speak to each of us as individuals, but also as a people? As we open the scriptures, as we study who you are and what you're inviting us into, that a life of worship to you would not just be a need or an ought, but the deepest desires and longings of our heart would just spring alive in these next few moments that the life that we were made for would once again become the life that we most deeply desire. Holy Spirit, guide us in this time. Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse two. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Amen, you may be seated. So notice just in these two little verses, specifically there in verse three, that after creating the world, the cosmos and everything within it, God did two things on his little Sabbath day as he's resting. The first is that God blessed the seventh day. The word blessed can be translated as to make happy. And so like like we looked at last week, Sabbath is a day of joy and delight of becoming like a child. It's a day of pleasure stacking, but there's even more. If you look back in the opening chapter of Genesis, there's only two other instances where God blesses something. And both of them occur in his commissioning of animals and humanity. So God gets together, makes the animals, makes humanities, and it says he blessed them and then said over them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, fill the waters, fill the skies. The implication by the time we get here to chapter two is that the seventh day, Sabbath, has been imbued by God with the same life-giving, life-multiplying, fill the earth with more of you, power and abundance, which makes sense of what God does next. Second, God made it holy. In Hebrew, the word holy is kadosh, and it means unique, special, or uncommon, but a more precise definition could be set aside for a special purpose. But the fact that God does this to a day would have been bizarre for the first readers of Genesis. See, in the world of the ancient Near East, all of these different creation accounts that exist out there, the gods were always found in space, not time. 
you'd find the gods on a holy mountain, in a cave, maybe a holy temple. And so for the original readers of Genesis, the assumption would be that God's holy, that he would go at the end of the creation day, the Garden of Eden, this mountaintop garden, that's now the holy place where people can come and find God. They'd be expecting that he would sanctify, he would make holy a place. But instead, God makes a day holy. Instead, God makes not a temple, but a cathedral in time, as Abraham Joshua Heschel puts it. And so the implication here is that for God, because he's the one true creator God, the one for whom all the cosmos is his domain, there is nowhere that he's not, and so all of creation is his temple. All places are his places. And so to find God, to experience this life-giving, life-multiplying blessing, you don't need to go to some special place, some pilgrimage out to a far-gone land. You just need to enter a special time. In order to enter into this, you don't need to go just climb some mountain. You just need to stop, rest, delight, and awaken to his already hereness. And so this is why this blessed and holy day can be experienced, whether you're in the goodness of the Garden of Eden here or even in its absence. You don't need to go to the Garden of Eden to find this kind of rest. You can experience it whether you're in Los Angeles or you're a runaway slave in the middle of the desert. Turn over to Exodus 16, 23, if you have your Bibles with you. Exodus 16, 23. says, Moses said to them, being the Israelites, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. Yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they didn't find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he's given you two days worth of bread. Each of you are then to stay where you are and no one is to leave his place on the seventh. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, there's a lot going on in this story in God's provision of manna. This bread like food from heaven, some of which we're going to be returning to in our later series, um, in our next series. But just for our time today, notice there at the beginning that, whole, that phrase, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. A day holy, set apart, dedicated to the Lord. A day set aside for the unique purpose of centering yourself on God's character and resting in his providence. So the Sabbath is, you know, bringing all the weeks so far together. Yes, absolutely a day for stopping. It's a day for resting. It's a day for delight. But through those, to enter a joy that goes beyond good food, that goes beyond a table with family and friends, that goes beyond a time off work into God himself, the Trinitarian community at the center of the universe, the one who radiates delight and joy in community, that's where Sabbath is meant to bring us. Put another way, it's a day for worship, which is more than just singing. As David Foster Wallace said, it's what all of you already do. And so to worship is to, once again, orient and reorient your entire life around something. And in this case, what we're seeing is what we've been created for, what you're made for. The deepest desires of your soul are to orient and reorient yourself around God. To orient your life around God as the creator, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. 
to enter into the orbit of the character of God, to drift around his compassion, his grace, his slow to anger, his abounding in faithful love and truth, his forgiving of iniquity and rebellion and sin, and to allow that to become the thing that we focus and orbit our lives around. It is to steep yourself in his work in this world his faithfulness to the people of Israel, his promises through the prophets, the incarnation and life of Jesus, his sin-saving, sin-forgiving death and resurrection, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of his church, this promised return to make all things right. Worship is when we orient ourselves around that story. Worship is when we anchor ourselves once again in, in God's work, not just in the world, but in our own life. Worship is when we recount the gritty details of your own salvation story. The moment when forgiveness was not just an abstract theology, but a deep inward feeling of lifting of shame and guilt and fear. Worship is when we bring ourselves back to remembering our journey of sanctification, that I used to be this way, and now I'm, I'm not fully like Jesus yet, but man, I am nowhere near where I used to be. Worship is when we bring ourselves back to those countless moments of God's presence, his provision, his guidance, vision, healing, deliverance, and work in our lives through other people and our, God's work in other people's lives through us. Worship is to lay your body, soul, mind, and strength, your life before God in love and then to deepen that surrender to his love. And none of this because God needs it, like he's some kind of divine, narcissistic megalomaniac. The whole point is the invitation of worship is not because God needs it, but because we do. This is what you were made for. A life with your creator abiding in his love and delight in you. This is what you were made for. This is the deepest yearning of your heart is to be known and seen for all that you are and still called my beloved son or daughter. It's the relationship we were made for. It's the blessing that's being held out to us, a life centered on the true center of all things. And so to get really practical here, one of the most central ways we do this is absolutely by singing. And yet there are so many more ways. Giving our time, our resources, honing our attention, warming our affection to God and to God through others as we yield our will over to God's will for other people's good. Worship is anything that we do with God at the center. Worship is anything that hums with the words of the Lord's prayer. Hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is worship. And Sabbath then is a day to stop and for stop to move into rest, for rest to move into delight, and then all of them to come together in worship through our stopping, resting, and delighting to contemplate the good news that God has given his life to us in Jesus and enjoy to give your life back to worship. On Sabbath, we come back to what the Quakers called our holy center in God. This point deep within all of us who have been baptized, where, where we are in Christ, where our spirit is in communion with his spirit, where we're not even sure where, where he begins and we end anymore, where we draw on the life that is the heart of the Trinity itself, and then we give our life in return to enter into the dance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what worship is all about. Sabbath is a weekly reorientation to and a hotspot of the entire life of worship.
It's this anchor point. The silliness is of like using the example that is so often used with things like this is, you know, being married and having like a regular like touch point or date night with my wife. The whole point is not that we don't talk to each other at all until that night. And it's just like, well, we'll save that for, we'll save that for later. Like, no, there's talking, there's engagement. And yet there is something about the necessity of having this time where we pause and we reorient ourselves to the relationship that we have. It's the hot spot, but it's, it overflows into the rest of the week. That is what Sabbath is meant to be like for, like for a life of worship. And so this is why for over a thousand years, Sabbath and the Sunday worship gathering were synonymous because just consider, if, if worship is to orient and reorient your entire life around God, just think about what's happening when we enter into this place. By just showing up on Sunday, we orient our week around God, not us. As we welcome one another at the doors and in the room and we serve coffee to one another, we orient our relationships around God's family. When we pray together, we orient our desires and our needs around God's power. When we give, we orient our wealth around God's provision. When we sing, we're orienting our hearts around God's character. When we stand to read from the scriptures, we're orienting our bodies around his word. When we study them together, we're orienting our minds and our souls around God's word. When we respond to what we hear, we're orienting our lives to God's invitation. When we come to the table, we are orienting our story around God's work in our life and receiving the blessing before we head out into the week, we are orienting our week around God's continuing presence with us. So you see the Sunday gathering, we're not just like messing around in here. Like, I don't know, we should pray at some point. Like communion sounds important. All of it is meant to be this hot spot for the people of God to enter into this Godward reorientation. The fancy language is liturgy that some of you are like, woo, and some of you are like, I'm out of here. But whatever you think of it, it is, is an intentional entering into what do our hearts and souls need most to, be re, to re-enter the orbit of the creator and our identity as his children. For those who seek to live this life of worship, Sunday worship cannot be an afterthought. It must be a central priority around which we plan everything else. And so don't hear me like, to say any of this to like guilt trip anybody into like perfect Sunday attendance or anything like that. But simply just to connect the dots between keeping the Sabbath holy and the on the ground realities that I've seen. Those who don't consistently orient their lives around God on Sunday struggle to do it consistently in the other six. And those who regularly make the, the, the priority and the leaning into the Sunday gathering is the thing that, yeah, there's gonna be times where I'm not able to make it, but that's, when I, that's my assumption is that that's where we're going to be. That's where I'm going to be on Sunday. They find that that first step of orienting themselves around God on a weekly basis overflows into their other six. But in order for that gathering to happen, it requires that some serve so others can gather. So to get kind of practical, going back to um, Lorenzo's announcement last week and Jeremy's announcement uh, just a bit ago, as we prepare to move next month to a regional model of serving for our Sunday gatherings, I want you to consider that serving too is a form of worship and reorientation towards God. Just, Just spend some time this week reading through the Gospels. Follow the life of Jesus and what you'll find is Jesus Jesus kept the Sabbath, like nobody's business. 
He's stopping, he's resting, he's delighting and worshiping with the best of them. But Jesus also regularly understood healing, loving, serving, doing good, and giving rest to others as expressions of his Sabbath worship, not the absence of them. And so as we enter into this new reciprocal rhythm of regions receiving rest by by coming to the gathering and participating in the gathering and then giving rest to others every third Sunday, this is an invitation for our community to follow Jesus' example to move us out of a consumeristic approach to church and, in, and an individualistic life and deeper into the life of giving and receiving love within a community of Jesus' people. It will serve as a stopgap to Sabbath being about just you and God. To go back to John Mark Comer's first insight at the beginning, how can we give Sabbath to others was that first one. What was the other one? How can we create family out of isolated individuals? The belief is that this new framework of serving is going to be how we can do just that. And so for those of you that Sabbath on Saturday, like my family does, because I know there there is a handful of you that do this in here, come talk to me, join discussions Aaron and I are having where we're like, oh yeah, serving, that's kind of, we already know that that's what Sundays are all about, but our rest time is on Saturdays. Come talk, me and Aaron, we're already having these discussions about how we too can follow Jesus in this kind of rhythm of Sabbath being a time not just to stop, rest, delight, and worship, but also regularly to worship through serving and giving rest to others. And so we're trying to discern a similar rhythm for those of us that don't set. So even if you're like, you know, well, I'll just move to Saturday instead of Sunday on the weeks that I, I, I still think there's something to be said about us inviting Sabbath into giving rest to others. So along with gathering and serving, I have two final exercises to add to your Sabbath practice. Two more. The first is a light and life-giving version of fixed hour prayer. So during your Sabbath, you take two or three times, so morning and evening or morning, afternoon and evening times, to pause and pray, not as intercession, asking God for things, asking for God to work in the world, because this is a form of work. This is why some traditions even forbid this kind of prayer on the Sabbath. And while that might be extreme, the intent is right. Sabbath prayer ought to be time to stop, rest, and reorient your heart towards God in gratitude, wonder, and awe. And so you can use a psalm, you can use the Lord's Prayer, music, worship music, and go for a walk. Uh, Every Moment Holy or, or another similar prayer book, you can do a prayer time with others. And just to find that time. And here's, here's what's great. If you Sabbath on Sundays, when you come to the gathering, you've already knocked out at least half or a third of your, your prayer times. And, and if it's a prayer night that week, then you're done. You're like, I guess I'll throw the afternoon in there too. Psalm 25:15 says, my eyes are always on the Lord. My eyes are always on the Lord. How do you get that kind of always on the Lord or what would Paul would say, praying without ceasing? It's by entering into a practice of fixed hour prayer that keeps training us to have a similar focus. And um, you can be practicing this on Sabbath as we're gonna be later on this year in July, most likely, um, trying to enter into our community being one of fixed hour prayer all six days of the week. So um, you, can, you can get that knocked out. You got one day done now, whenever we implement that. So the first thing is, Uh, to enter into a day of worship, take on a life-giving, light version of fixed hour prayer. And the second is to identify two to three practices by which you enjoy God and do them. Discover the ways that you are uniquely wired by God to enjoy God, whether that's stillness 
or a party, whether that's worship music or a walk in nature, whether that's emotional, long, deep conversations with close friends, or intellectual, reading theology, philosophy, or quantum physics. Like, figure out, what is it? What, how does God wired me to deeply delight in him and lean into it? And you can use the grid of stop, rest, delight, and worship from last week just to kind of figure out how to name those things. Is it stopping? Is it resting? Is it delightful? And then is this worship? And then once you've, if it gets through that grid, go for it. Go for it. All of this and along with the reach exercises can be found in the Sabbath Companion Guide at collectivechurch.com slash current series. And so along with those practices, you could also step into reading the rest of Sabbath by Dan Allender, listening to episode four of the Sabbath series from the Rule of Life podcast, or for your reach exercise, uh, stepping into incorporating a time of silence and solitude into your Sabbath. So if that's new to you, uh, the companion guide has all the details for you. But once again, you can do one, two, three, or none of these. Uh, They're simply supplements for your Sabbath journey. As one quick reminder, the companion guide also has the final Sabbath reflection for you to fill out and then work through in your discipleship groups. And then also, just as a reminder, Sabbath is a lifelong journey. It, I, I'm eight years in and I'm, I still, like, I'm still getting my sea legs. It, it can take years, even decades, to truly master the art of Sabbath as God intended. So with all this going on, just breathe deep. It will take time. It will take time. Which is why for our next series, I Am, the identity of Jesus in John's gospel, we're looking at the I Am statements of Jesus as a lead up to Easter. And so um, that begins February 19th, but our recommended practices will largely revolve around just you going deeper and implementing little things into your Sabbath or trying things out for a week. Um, So the whole point is like, okay, we're going to go all the way to Easter. Just keep laying down the groundwork of those habits of entering into Sabbath. So... Once again, to go back to David Foster Wallace, everybody worships. And these intentional habits that I've just detailed, gathering on Sunday with the people of God, serving one another, prayer, leaning into our spiritual pathways, silence and solitude, all of these are means of ensuring that we keep the Sabbath for who it truly belongs to. In the Ten Commandments we read, Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As we saw in Genesis The Sabbath was made holy by God. But here in the Ten Commandments, we're given an option. We can either keep it holy as it is, or in the language of Scripture, we can profane it. We can desecrate it. We can keep Sabbath set apart to the the creating, saving, redeeming, life-giving God, or we can devalue it and hand it off to another. It can be a time of worship to God and finding your deepest self within the God who has made you and saved you, or it can be your weekly opportunity to replay the liturgy of desire, demand, deserve, disappointed, discouraged, and depressed. The option's before you. So the question is, what about you? And what about me? Do we keep the Sabbath holy or do we profane it? What do you worship? And are you sure? Because ultimately, this isn't just about a day, it's about your life. Just remember, Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, as you keep hearing me say, and as of all the commandments of Scripture, but especially the Ten, they have been given by God to guard you from death and guide you into life, to guard you from death and guide you into life. As Moses said of the commandments in Deuteronomy, you'll see behind me, I set before you life or death, choose this day. Nothing can bear the weight of your worship 
other than the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Nothing was made to bear the load of your worship other than the creator God and nothing else can. And it will only always lead to a crumbling orbital decay and fallout and destruction and like the, the, the liturgy that we talked about. But the problem is, is that our culture continues to kill itself through a gospel of self-worship and through the religious deeds of overwork, overconsumption, overactivity. We are, as Neil Postman famously said, amusing ourselves to death. Few things are as desperately needed today as the recovering of the ancient practice of Sabbath, not simply as a Christian form of wellness culture, but as a weekly orientation to the God at the center of the universe who in his love has brought us into his very self for the life that we were created for and the life that's to come. Abraham Joshua Heschel, you gotta quote him at least one more time, in his book on the Sabbath writes, unless one learns how to relish the taste of Sabbath while still in the world, unless one is initiated in the appreciation of eternal life, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. The essence of the world to come is Sabbath eternal and the seventh day in time is an example of eternity. Sabbath is an aftertaste of the life of the Garden of Eden and a foretaste of the life of new creation. Sabbath is a recovery of what was lost and it's a rehearsal for what's to come. It's practicing for eternity. And for those who truly want God at the center of their lives and believe him to be the one that deserves that, it is, it is heaven on earth for a day because that is where we are going. But for those who continue that continue in a life of self-worship, even if they could enter into new creation, it would feel like hell for them because their whole life has been around themselves and to give themselves to eternity, rotating and orbiting around anyone other than themselves would be hell for them. This is the option that's set before us is life or death. Resurrection life through worship Resurrection life through orienting and reorienting ourselves on God. Resurrection life through trusting faith in the resurrected Jesus who called himself the Lord of the Sabbath or the both living and eventual death of self-worship. Who do you worship? Choose this day. And so as we wrap up, as we move into a time of response to just deal with what the Spirit's bringing up within us, uh, normally I just kind of pray and we move into this time. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me a liturgy of praise to the king of creation by Every Moment Holy, a little prayer book. It's a little bit longer. <laughs> we, uh, we've, I have a stack of them that I just give to people now. It's like, it's your birthday. Like you're getting this prayer book. It's so good. Um, so before we move into the time of response, we're gonna pray this together. The prayer is written to be responsive. And so what I wanna invite y'all to do is to pray this with me. So I'll be reading the italicized portions and then you all join in with me to read the bold portions together. Sound good? We can do this. All right. So let's begin. Let's just take a moment before we jump in and just, just collect ourselves from what we've been hearing. The invitation to worship, to naming the God that's at the center of all things. Our thoughts of you, O oh Lord, have been too small, too few. For seldom have we considered how specific is the exercising of your authority, extending as it does into the myriad of particulars of creation. Together, there is no quarter over which you are not king. 
And as creation hurdles toward its liberation and redemption, the full implications of your deep lordship are yet to be revealed in countless facets unconsidered. Christ, you are the snow king. You are the maker of all weathers. You are the king of sunlight and storms, the king of gray skies and rain. You are the rain king, the sun king, the hurricane king. You are the king of autumn and king of spring. And our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small, too few. The old and impotent gods our ancestors once believed in were at their very best, but imperfect pictures of you, whose strength and goodness and creative majesty and wonderful mystery and love exceed those old rumors as sunlight exceeds the tiny dimness of stars reflected in a dark and wavering pool. The fairy tales crafted by our old cultures hinted at you, though they knew it not, Yet their perfect princes and blessed ends were yearnings for all that has found fulfillment in you. You are the Lord of the harvest, the grain king, the wine king, the God of plenty, God of hearth and home. You are the hill king, the wildflower king, king of the great bears, king of canyons. You are the monarch of meadows, the lord of the lava fields, ruler of the desert wastes, the polar king, the rainbow king, king of the southern cross, and the king of the northern lights. You are the king of the rabbits and the lord of tall trees. You are the god of youth and the god of age. You are the acorn king, the river god, the swamp king, king of glades, king of dells, ruler of all hummingbirds. You are the horse lord, the crag king, lord of the bees, king of the walruses, commander of rhinos, lord of lightning bugs, cave lord, mountain king, ruler of the grassy plains, god of the valleys. You are the captain of the clouds, the wolf king, the king of the cockatoos. And our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small, too few. For your claim... Over creation is vast. You are the Lord of Antarctica, the King of California, the King of the Scottish Hills, and the King of the Nile. You are the weaver of the unseen fabrics of the world. You are the Lord of the atoms, the ruler of electrons, the Lord of gravity, and the King of quarks. Your dominion enfolds the earth and rises beyond it to the furthest extremes of the stars. You are the Lord of the vast empty spaces. You are the king of constellations, the black hole king, Lord of Nova's exploding, Lord of speeding light, high king of galaxies, king of Orion, king of the moon. And still, even still, our thoughts of you have been too small, too few. You are the God of justice the God of wisdom, the God of mercy, the God of redemption. You are the Lord of love. All of this is true, but our thoughts of you are still too few. For our minds are too small to conceive of them all, let alone to contain them. You were before all things. You created all things. And in you, all things are held together. There is no corner of creation you will fail to redeem. You are Lord of lords and King of kings. O Jesus Christ, our King of everything. Amen. So, yeah, I mean, come on. It's so good.
I, I, uh, I, I regularly can't, I'm, I'm surprised I made it through without crying, so we're just gonna keep going before I start to. So once again, as I've said this morning, time and time again, to worship is to orient and reorient your entire life around this magnificent God, the Lord of the lightning bugs, the King of quarks, this God, unfathomable, and yet is also the God of justice and mercy and love, the God incarnate in person in Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you so that you might enter into this kind of a relationship with him. Worship, it's to surrender your body, soul, mind, and strength, your life before him in love, trusting that the God who hung the heavens is able to guide you in what it means to be fully human and for you to deepen in that surrender to his love.